They do a fantastic job. Fantastic job. Thank you all so much. Um, I'm a little bit under the weather. I might get a little squeaky more so than normal or um, a little bit later. So actually, I'm preaching a little shorter today, so that's going to help be helpful for me, maybe also for you. Kenny's going to come up here in a little while and share some of his trip to Nepal, uh, some of the details of that. So we look forward to sharing some of that with you. Um, we have been in a series looking at the parables of the Lord Jesus. Today we come to the parable of the dishonest manager. In some of your translations, it may call it the parable of the unjust steward. Uh, it comes from Luke chapter 16. I want to share with you just a quick summary of Luke chapter 16 because it's important that we look at the context um, around this parable so that we make sure we get the interpretation of the parable correctly. So real quickly here, here's Luke chapter 16 kind of broken down into its segment part. Remember, uh, Luke, who is compiling this, takes different episodes from the life of Jesus, different teachings that Jesus offers, and he compiles them together in a single subject matter here in Luke chapter 16. And the subject matter is the, ma is the theme of money. And we've come to verses 1 through 9, which is the parable of the unjust steward or the dishonest manager is how this guy is managing his money. When we come to verses 10 through 13, uh, Jesus gives some uh, kind of sort of within the same subject matter of money, but a little bit different than what he shared here in the parable. Um, he talks about how we can't serve both God and money. When we come to verse 14, uh, Jesus confronts the Pharisees, and that starts out with the line, the Pharisees who were lovers of you can see the theme, right? And then we get to verse 19 through the, and following through the rest of the chapter, and it's all about this rich man and a fellow by the name of Lazarus and how the rich man ends up in hell, not because he's rich, but because he didn't uh, put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Um, instead, he put his trust in. All right, so we have a theme here going on in Luke chapter 16. This parable is part of that theme. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. We'll read the first little part of the parable, Luke chapter 16. Let's start at verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so I know it's a little bit of a mouthful, but that's the beginning of this parable that Jesus teaches here about the dishonest manager. Um, this is one of the more difficult passages or difficult parables to handle correctly because we're going to meet a number of characters in this story, and every one of them is a little shady. Every one of them is a little underhanded, and then Jesus gets to the end of the parable, and he says, do like what they did. And I'm going, okay, needs a little nuance here to explain this. So just kind of keep that in mind that we've, we've got some people who are— really not behaving right, and then Jesus is saying, and I want for you to do as they did, so we got to work with that a little bit. Look at verse 1. He said to the disciples, so this is not something he shares for the masses. This is not something he shares with uh, his enemies. This is a story, rather, that he shares with people who have devoted themselves to him. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Think of this manager like a COO or a chief operating officer. This man ran the rich man's business. Back in Bible times, in the first century, um, if a person had, was rich, this guy apparently was rich, probably had multiple businesses, and he would um, assign 
different people to manage those various businesses that he had. The people that he would sign to those businesses had full authority to buy, sell, and trade any of the possessions under their supervision. And so that's what this, what this manager's doing. Well, he, well the, man, or the rich man, the owner, finds out this fellow's been doing a lousy job. Verse 2. The result is, he called him in and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? So word's gotten back to the rich man that some of his uh, business dealings have not been too good. Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, we're not, this is not a conversation about how, what we're going to do moving forward. This is a conversation about go clean out your desk, right? Bring, bring me your, your ledger, bring me the books, and, and we're done here. Um, it's time for you to go. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? So a little soliloquy here. We hear from the manager. He's saying, you know, I, I'm about ready to lose my job. I'm about ready to lose my livelihood. I'm about ready to lose my ability to pay my bills. I'm about ready to lose the roof over my head. Uh, what can I do? And so he comes up with a couple of options for himself, just thinking here out loud. He says in verse 3, hey, look, I can, uh, I can go out and dig ditches, right? Or I can go out and dig wells. He said, but, you know, digging's really not my thing. I'm not really into manual labor. And he says, well, then I, I'm, I'm too ashamed to beg. Like, I'm too proud to beg. Don't want to go out and do that. So what shall I do? Verse 4, here's what I've decided to do. Here's my idea. And if my idea, when I put it into practice, if it works, if, if the way I'm thinking it's going to work, I will have people who I, who I ingratiate to me, people who, when I'm removed from management, will receive me into their houses. Back in Bible times, people typically lived on the estate where they worked. Housing was part of the compensation. And so not only was this guy losing his job, but he now has no place to stay. And so he says, look, I'm coming up with a scheme. I'm coming up with a plan that will help me to solve that problem. Verse 5, here's the idea. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first one, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6. He said, I owe 100 measures of olive oil. That's about 900 gallons. This is not the bubbling crude. This is olive oil that we're talking about here. About 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a tremendous amount of olive oil. Scholars say that this is the yield of about 150 olive trees. So a tremendous amount of money, a tremendous amount of wealth that this guy owes back to the owner of the business. He said to the debtor, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So he tells him, cut it in half, right? Now, what's this manager doing? Well, his idea is to settle some of the master's debts at a deep discount, and then tomorrow, when he needs a place to stay, because remember, he's getting kicked off the estate, he's losing his job. Tomorrow, when he needs a place to stay, he can go and knock on Mr. Olive Oil's door and say, hey, remember me? Remember that great deal that I cut you yesterday? Well, hey, how about putting me up for a couple of nights? So this is his plan. This is his scheme. He's hoping that's going to work. So God, uh, or so you say, hey, Gordon, isn't that stealing? Absolutely it is. He, I mean, this isn't his money. It's interesting how I was reading through the commentaries this week, and some of the people want to try and make it as though the, uh, the, this manager was actually in the good, because Jesus is asking us to do what the manager did, right? And so they want to say, oh, well, he was just giving up his commission of the sale. 50%? I'm going, I don't, I don't know what realtor you work for, but that doesn't work in the real world. And not, not only that, but this that's unheard of in the ancient world to have some kind of commission like that. So, I mean, this guy is, he is stealing from his, from the owner. He's taken part of, he's, he's taken the authority that he has to buy, sell, and trade, and he's abusing that for his own good purposes. This is dishonest. That's why it's called parable of the dishonest manager, right? Notice that it said, that he says, sit down quickly. Thieves are always in a hurry, 
con men are always in a hurry. Hey, sit down, sign this, sign that, sign here, right? They want to get this deal done so they can get on with um, getting away with it. The point is, this is a very shady character, and Jesus casts him that way. He wants for us to see the deception and the underhandedness and the prodigality of this manager. When we get to verse 7, the manager does it again. Then he says to another one, verse 7, how much do you owe? Debtor number two says, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80, and I'll be at your house on Tuesday, <laughs> right? Notice that none of the debtors question this sudden reversal of fortune. I mean, there's an urgency that they feel coming from this manager to get this deal done. Go back home, get your check, but come back here when you get this thing done really quickly. They can feel the urgency. Of course, it's a great deal for them, but doesn't it dawn on them, hey, what's going on here? Why all the rush? Um, yeah, I want to, I want to, this is a great deal. I want to make this happen, but what, what, something, something's amiss here. Um, certainly they can sense this. Certainly they know they're getting the better of the owner of this business. Um, which means that these debtors are just as complicit in this underhanded shady deal as the manager himself is. So we've got a dishonest manager. We've got dishonest debtors. And now about, we're about ready to see that the owner of the business is a little rascally himself. Verse 8 says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Hmm. I mean, if somebody did me like that, I'm going to be irate, right? I'm calling the cops. I'm calling the feds. We're going to do a full investigation. This deal's going to be undone. But instead, the master, the owner of the business is like, hey, you know, game recognizes game, right? Because it would take a thief to recognize a thief or appreciate a thief. That's really kind of what we're dealing with here, right? This is just one master chess player recognizing a master move by another master chess player. So we've got, we've got a whole bunch of shadiness going on between all the characters in this. We've got a dishonest manager. We've got dishonest debtors. And now we've got this rascally master. Out of all of this, the Lord Jesus wants us to learn what? <laughs> you can see the difficulty of this particular parable. Does he want for me to cheat out on my boss? Is that what Jesus is trying to advocate here? I mean, people who teach liberation theology down in Latin America have looked at this parable and said, hey, look, see, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take money from the man. We're supposed to cheat the man. And so and God is saying that that's okay for us to do. That's what Jesus is telling us to do here in this parable. Is that what he's telling us to do? What is Jesus trying to teach us? What difference does any of this make, right, to my life? Well, first of all, remember the context. The theme of chapter 16 is, all right, good, I'm glad you all are listening, is money. And so whatever lessons that the Lord Jesus wants us to extract from this parable, the lesson will concern money. Okay, with that in mind, let's take a look at what difference this makes to your life and to mine. Jesus tells us the difference that it makes starting at the middle of verse 8 and running through the end of verse 9. So here, here we go, middle of verse 8. Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd, the manager, those debtors, that master, they're more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light are. I made a slide for you here. I want for us to visualize the comparison that Jesus makes. We've got two different groups of people. We have the, vision, the sons of this world and the sons of light. Two groups of people. The sons of this world, we've already met them, the debtor, the manager, the master. They can be unscrupulous. 
Not always, but they can be. We've seen them be underhanded. Their conscience does not always guide their actions. If there's a way for them to get ahead and it means cheating or stealing or abusing their authority, they're happy to do that because, hey, I got ahead. Now contrast that with the sons of light. The sons of light are the followers of Jesus. John chapter 12 and verse 36 says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that, he may, that you may become sons of light. These are the followers of Jesus. Ephesians 5 and verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children or sons of light. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 5, For you all are children of, or sons of light, children of the day. So you have two groupings of people here. We have the children of the world or the sons of the world, and we have the children or the sons of light. Uh, that is Christians and, and non-Christians. So Jesus says, when you compare these two groups, don't you see how much more shrewd, this is verse 8, middle of verse 8, don't you see how much more shrewd the people of this world are in turning money toward their own benefit than my own followers are? I mean, the people of this world will go to great lengths to make sure their money benefits them to the uttermost. Jesus says, I want to make sure y'all do the same with the resources at your disposal. So that's the comparison. And we get to verse 9, Jesus tells us how to do this. Okay? So he's just making a point here about, hey, look, we want to, we want to have the same kind of shrewdness, the same kind of um, maximizing of resources that the world does toward its temporary gains. Uh, we want to use that same resources and maximize those toward eternal rewards and eternal gains. So here's what that looks like practically. Verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That is, using the currency of this world, the currency that is available to you. Use that money to make friends for yourselves so that when the money fails, and it will because you can't take it with you, right? When that money fails, those friends that you made may then receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I'm going to give you the GGRV which is the Gordon Griffin Revised Version, okay? And this is what Jesus just said. He said, use your money to bring other people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that again. This is what Jesus just said in verse 9. He said, use your money to bring other people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 9 is all about. Now, I mentioned just a moment ago a perspective that is universally true, and that is that you cannot take it with you. Right? Ask the pharaohs of Egypt who piled all that stuff into those tombs, those massive vaults sitting underneath that big pyramid, impregnable vaults, they thought. And they brought all that gold in there. They brought all those rubies in there, hoping that when they got to the afterlife, those, those same goods would be there to greet them. Well, today all that wealth is on display in museums around the world, confirming that you can't take it with you. However, what Jesus teaches us is that there is actually a way for you to take it with you. And it's in the form of lives touched and lives changed and souls won by the good news of Jesus Christ. That is how we can take it with us. Jesus is telling us here in verse 9 that dollars spent toward the gospel enterprise will yield eternal dividends. The great theologian and church planter John Wesley said, speaking on this topic of money, he said, earn all you can. Save all you can, and then give all that you can. Let me offer us, in the few moments that I have remaining, three categories of giving 
that will yield this kind of eternal reward that the Jesus is trying to give us a perspective of. And then I'm going to hand this thing off to Kenny. Number one, uh, first category of giving is giving to our local church. We know about this. The whole reason for our place, this place to exist and other places like this to exist is to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to see lives touched by the gospel. Giving to our local church is one way that our dollars can have an eternal impact. A second way is by giving to organizations like the Pregnancy Resource Center that you heard about just a few moments ago. These folks exist not just to stand in the gap for the unborn, but to share the good news about Jesus with every single client that walks into their doors. And they're sharing with them about how Jesus loves them, about he died for them, for their sins, and how they can enter into a real and personal relationship with him. Uh, people like the Acts that our church supports, a, a local food pantry, um, organizations like Finding Hope are all ministries that our church supports. Fledge Fiamingo and his crazy South African accent. Some of you remember Fledge. Um, all of these exa are examples of ministry that fall into the Luke 16 and verse 9 category of giving. Ministries that are making friends for eternal dwellings. Now, giving to the United Way and giving to the American Red Cross, those are wonderful organizations, but they are not gospel-centered ministries. They are not sharing the good news about Jesus. So, yes, those are philanthropic and wonderful um, things to support, but they are not um, of the Luke 16 and verse 9 category. They don't meet that threshold. Just something to think about. Number three, and finally, a third way that we can make our money count for eternal dwellings is to find folks in our community in need and to give or help out in the name of Jesus. I was at Waffle House this past week. I look like I go to Waffle House a lot, don't I? <laughs> trying, to, trying to suck it in a little bit. Uh, my wife's like, you got to stop doing that. But, um, anyhow, I was at Waffle House this past week having um, Bible study with one of, our, one of our church members, and I had my Bible out, and he had his Bible out. And we were sitting there talking about the Lord, and there weren't not hardly a, many people in there. It was pretty early in the morning. And uh, there was a lady sitting at the counter, and she was looking over at us. I kept noticing that she was looking over at us. And we were just having a conversation about the Lord and reading our Bibles. And I could tell she was just kind of enjoying seeing what we were doing. And um, a little while later, we were about halfway through our meal. She comes walking over our table, and she had finished hers and gets ready to head out of the restaurant. And she walked over, and she said, hey, I just want you all to know that Jesus paid for your meal this morning. I mean, that's a little different, right? That's not something you run into. That's your typical Waffle House greeting. Um, but I thought, well, that was really sweet. She didn't give us her name. She only gave us the only name that mattered, right? And I'm sure that the Lord Jesus heard that, saw that, and credited it to her account on the other side of things. Um, you know, there's lots of ways that we can give toward eternal dwellings, toward things that matter for eternity. And so finding, in a personal way, needs in our community, people who, uh, people who we can help out in the name of Jesus, friends, that's, that's one of the ways that we can give in the uh, Luke 16 and verse 9 threshold. So those are three ways of giving that um, reap eternal rewards. Uh, a use of money that Jesus would label as shrewd. Number one, giving through our local church. Number two, giving to support ministries that are Christ-centered. Number three, giving on a personal level and doing so in the name of Jesus. And those are in no particular order.